Some of that sentiment we uh, buy into a Seventh-day Adventist. Some of it I don't think we're willing to go where it's taken a number of people as recently as January 6th. Uh, the uh, WCTU, Women's Christian Temperance uh, Union, the Dylan White was very much involved with preaching against alcohol and giving talks all over the country. WCTU was one of the largest uh, civic organisations. They were absolutely set for a sun- national Sunday law. Most of the major religions then, as now, if you scratch a little deeply beneath the surface, would love to have, would have loved then and would love now to have uh, uh, the Sunday worship, Sunday sacredness, as well as other aspects of religion enshrined in law. Uh, Through Liberty Magazine, we're always pointing out that the Constitution effectively sets up a separation of church and state. But you will hunt far and wide today as back in 1888 to find evangelical-type Christians who buy that. I've been in meetings where they spit it out. They say, in fact, the most extreme way I can, uh, I can tell you what their view today is, and it was much the same then. Uh, I remember Bill Bright, who died a decade or two ago now. He was founder of Campus Crusade. I remember him in his final days on oxygen, on camera, and he says, the separation of church and state is a satanic concept. So don't think that while in Liberty or in Adventist meetings you hear about how wonderful the Constitution is, that's not accepted by most Christians. The Catholic Church have reiterated uh, their support for the separation of church and state as the religious underdog for many years in the US. But if you scratch their view, it's even more troubling because they have the concept of of, um, subsidiarity, they call it. The church and state are separate, but the state is subsidiary to the church. That's the medieval model without its teeth exercised, but it's not a good relationship. So this bill, going back to 1888, stood a good chance to pass. And I think A.T. Jones was, was correct in seeing this as a, a, a direct threat to freedom of religion and a fulfillment of prophecy. But I want to share with you just a few paragraphs. You've heard about it, I'm sure, but have you ever read it? This is the first few paragraphs, what it said. It's not ambiguous. Uh, this was uh, in the 50th Congress, uh, introduced... Uh, Uh, by Senator Blair, and it says, a bill to secure to the people the enjoyment of the first day of the week, commonly known as the Lord's Day, as a day of rest and to promote its observance as a day of religious worship. Be it enacted by the Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States of America and Congress assembled that no person, no corporation or the agent, servant or employee of any person or corporation shall perform or authorize to be performed any secular work, labor, or business to the disturbance of others' works of necessity, mercy, and humanity accepted. Nor shall any person engage in any play, game, or amusement, or recreation to the disturbance of others on the first day of the week. You thought the Taliban were extreme. Kite flying would have been out on this, right? Commonly known as the Lord's Day, or during any part thereof in any territory, district, vessel, or place subject to the exclusive jurisdiction of the United States, nor shall it be lawful for any person or corporation to receive pay for labour or service performed or rendered in violation of this section. And it goes on. No males. Uh, the The prosecution of commerce between the states and with the Indian tribes, the same not being work of necessity, mercy or humanity. 
the usual prejudice against uh, uh, the Indians. This wasn't to happen. Everything was to stop on Sunday. That all military and naval drills, musters and parades, not in time of active service or immediate preparation thereof, of soldiers, sailors, marines or cadets of the United States on the first day of the week, except assemblies for the due and orderly observance of religious worship, are hereby prohibited, nor shall unnecessary labour be performed or permitted in the military service of the United States on the Lord's Day. Uh, I guess Mexico would have invaded on Sunday if they were smart. But, you know, that, that's the bill. And it was defeated very uh, providentially, I believe. But yet not logically, because most of the groups were behind it. I've uh, spent a lot of time on liberty going back on the old issues. And I pulled one, not quite at random, 1918. Because to me, 1918, in the middle of a COVID uh, emergency, is, is a nice bracketing point. That's the last time we had something like COVID, when 600,000... Americans died, same number as at the moment, but with a population about a third or a quarter of what it is now. And I wanted to look, what, what's Liberty Magazine on about at that point? And in a moment I saw the same stuff. Uh, shell majorities rule. Uh, and uh, I guess I didn't put the right tag in here. Then they were talking about Sunday ordinances declared invalid. They were fighting against the Sunday closing laws. And uh, uh, in one paragraph here it says, majority rule should be confined to issues upon the, which the government has a right to decide, and religion is not a good one of them. A short time ago in the city of Los Angeles, a Sunday closing ordinance was before the city council. Retail grocers, in advocating its passage, claimed that 95% of the grocers favoured it, and the other 5% was too small to be worthy of any consideration. Representatives of religious bodies in favour of the ordinance said that it was chiefly opposed by those who kept another day and that there were but a few thousand of them and in comparison with the advocates of Sunday, they were so few that they were not worthy of attention or hearing. That's Adventists they're talking about. Remember what Ellen White says? She said, they say you're just a small people. Why are you objecting? You're holding back the progress of the nation. You know, come, come good. Uh, so for Adventists, this has been a consistent concern. And of course, the blue laws are around. But blue laws are not directly Sunday laws. They're part of that phenomenon. And the US came by it naturally. If you've read Liberty magazine, you know that I like history and I have regularly referred back to the experience in England and in particular the Civil War, 100 years before the War of Independence here. And, and very people seem, few people seem to remember or be interested in the fact that it was a religious civil war fought uh, uh, against the king and his uh, Catholic uh, allies. Uh, there were a number of groups uh, that fought on the parliamentarian side, but in the end it was the Puritans that rose to prominence and their general, after uh, leading them to victory in the civil war and putting the king on trial, cutting his head off, he ruled as a uh, religious... Uh, Strongman, for want of a better word. Uh, but during that period, and I know most of you know uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, it was common for people to be fined for, as I've got a book at home about the different penalties for Sabbath breaking or Sunday breaking as we understand it. 
And one uh, the county clerk was fined for keeping to his bed on Sunday. You were obliged to go to church. He was fined for it. And another person was even fined for, uh, I forget the wording, but it says, in other words, singing like a pig in church. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the civil magistrates were into all your religious activity. So that transferred just neatly to the United States. And, and as recently as, as the uh, year before last, because last year was sort of a, an interregnum on every front, uh, I remember going to North Dakota to, to uh, Bismarck and I was flying out late in the, in the morning, so I thought I'll go to Walmart. So I drove down the main street and there was the Walmart. They're always pretty busy, but nobody was around. And on the front door was a big sign that says, the blue law has been exercised. We are not open on Sunday here. So don't think these things are gone. Uh, and in our era, the echoes are not quite silent. I remember a few days ago listening to, uh, on one of the television stations, a dialogue between a, a, a right-wing congresswoman and uh, one of the TV personalities, and they were having her explain why uh, in certain parts of the country they're trying to restrict uh, voting hours and just inhibiting certain groups from, from getting to the voting stations. And uh, they, they said to her, because she was against having voting open on Sunday, and they said, aren't you aware that a lot of the black churches have a get-out-the-vote effort on Sunday and will bust the parishioners to the voting station. And she said, they shouldn't be voting on Sunday anyway. The Sunday is the Lord's day. We don't want people to be doing anything except worshipping on Sunday. In her case, I think she was being a little cute because they do want to disadvantage a certain group as far as the vote. But this sentiment is there. There's no question. Uh, I want to keep to my own agenda. As talking about this topic, these topics, I've been uh, careful over the years to always reference the book Last Day Events, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. But it might not have occurred to you when the church put this together. The White Estate assembled it in 1992. What happened in 1992? That was First Gulf War. Uh, clearly, our church got a bit of a shock that here events were moving forward. And uh, I found that it's about as good a collection of statements on this topic uh, that's been put before the members in, in recent years. And I'll just read you a few of the leading quotes on uh, where things are heading on Sunday and on legislation and so on. On page 126, there are a few comments that relate to how we, should re how we should respond to these things. Like, I've talked to Adventists to say, it's coming, you know, big deal, let it happen. And Ellen White says this in Testimonies, Volume 5, she says, there are many, even of those engaged in this movement for Sunday enforcement, who are blinded by the results that will follow this action. They do not see that they are striking directly against religious liberty. There are many who have never understood the claims of the Bible study, of the Bible Sabbath, and the false foundation upon which the Sunday institution rests. She says it is our duty to do all in our power to avert the threatened danger. 
A vast responsibility is devolving upon men and women of prayer throughout the land to petition that God may sweep back this cloud of evil. She wrote this in 1888. And to give a few more years of grace to work for the master. And then she went further in Testimonies 5, which is my favourite volume of the Testimonies. We are not doing the will of God if we sit in quietitude, doing nothing to preserve liberty of conscience. And elsewhere she wrote, and I couldn't find it for this meeting, but it's a common quote. She says, Satan is ordering things so that we will have neither mercy nor justice. I remember a few years ago, uh, long story, but I was, I was a guest of a, a right-wing uh, political planning group, nothing to do with Adventism. And, and as part of the weekend's events, we had a banquet at Focus on the Family. And I ended up sitting next to Dr. Dobson, interesting guy. And I, I read his books in Australia and serialised them even in our division paper when I was putting it together. So it was great to sit next to him. I introduced myself and without really any uh, further discussion, he said, Seventh-day Adventist, he said, you think I'm bringing the Sunday law, don't you? And he says, I've written a letter to the General Conference saying that. And I knew about the letter and I said, no, I don't think you're trying to push the Sunday law, but much of what you're connected with has that as its natural end. And it was very interesting to me that not many months after that, uh, that dinner conversation, he had to legally divorce himself with his activities from Focus on the Family. He was overtly political. I don't know if you remember that. He was about to lose his tax uh, uh, concessions with Focus on the Family because of his direct political involvement. On the way down here, I uh, stopped in at a thrift shop, which my son who's driving with me uh, thought was uh, a bit out of line, but I, I, I buy music CDs and, and books and other stuff. And in a dumpster, literally, full of books, I found a book that I feel uh, bad that I didn't read this. You see the name Hal Lindsey, and probably all of you have read The Late Great Planet Earth, right? How many of you have read this book, The Road to Holocaust? I didn't even know it existed. Uh, he wrote this just a few years after the other book, but he's right on the money because something that I've mentioned over and over again, and, and now it's a present danger. In Ellen White's time, it was the national reform movement that were pushing for uh, Sunday observance. Uh, when I was a kid, the follow-on from that was the uh, Lord's Day Alliance. And I can remember a story that I have to say is apocryphal since I wasn't directly there, but at the General Conference, one of the, the uh, uh, associates in a department came back from a trip and said he sat next to one of the Lord's Day Alliance people who during the uh, gas crisis of 73, I think it was, was bragging that they were hopeful that if it continued much longer, they would have a Sunday law and perhaps even uh, severe penalties like a death penalty. Don't know, but I could imagine. You know, people get carried away with their agenda. But Hal Lindsay is right on the money here because he says uh, the title is The Road to Holocaust, and he's referring to the Holocaust of World War II and to the uh, extermination attempt against the Jews. And he said that the evangelical movement, uh, with its dependence upon uh, dominionist uh, principles, which derives directly from Christian reconstructionism, 
was likely to visit a similar holocaust upon the world and even in the United States. And I think he's right on the money. Who has heard of Christian Reconstructionists? Not many. I noticed them years ago when I was at Pacific Press. I was book editor. I used to go to the Christian Booksellers Association uh, meetings. Big confabs, tens of thousands of people, all the Christian booksellers. and uh, uh, They had a title for things beyond books, little bits and pieces. It was Jesus Junk and Holy Hardware, which is not nice, but it reminds me of Jesus cleansing the temple. A lot of uh, commerce in the name of religion. But there was always a display, and I came back to it over and over again, of the Christian Reconstructionists. Uh, books written by the founder, Rush Dooney, his son-in-law, Gary North. And once I got a bead on them, I noticed right up until um, the Obama administration, whenever there was a gathering of uh, religious leaders in the White House, Gary North would be there in these uh, close confabs with the different administrations and the presidents. Uh, uh, Christian Reconstructionists want to establish a literal Old Testament government in the United States. And they have been very successful. Whether they'll ever gain it in their own right, prophecy hints that they might, but we'll see. But they are very influential in the general evangelical world. And, and you, you have heard the term dominionism. That's basically a light version of Christian Reconstructionists. Uh, the Christian Reconstructionist plan is quite chilling. I've heard them, even on television, explain their agenda. When they gain power, after a six-month cooling-off period, there would be mandatory death for uh, homosexuality, uh, adultery, and Sabbath-breaking. And I can tell you, they don't mean uh, Saturday Sabbath-breaking. Uh, but there's good news. Only about a year ago, one of their representatives was on television. I heard him interviewed, and he said that they had rethought their attitude toward uh, homosexuals. They would not apply the mandatory death sentence as long as people kept quiet about it. Uh, but you know, there are rational people in this liberal democracy who are working for this sort of a religious takeover. And you might think I'm overreacting, but when I saw on January 6th, those uh, assault teams, some of them, as well as uh, a bunch of sheep. And that's always true, no matter what the revolution is. But, you know, there were attack groups that went straight through hunting for the legislators to take them hostage or worse. And when they came into the chamber, a number of them gathered around the speaker's uh, podium and prayed and thanked the Lord for what they were doing. Uh, in the name of religion, all sorts of crazy things are done. And, and Sunday... Uh, Worship is front and center. Uh, a few years ago, since we're down in Florida, I was thinking about this driving down. Uh, I, I had the Reverend D. James Kennedy. Remember him? Coral Gables. Hour of Power, wasn't it? But anyway, I had a television program. Had him write an article for Liberty Magazine because he was one of the strongest promoters of what was known as the Jones Bill. Uh, and as he described it, it was unchain the churches, let them be political uh, action groups. He wanted unlimited funding and unlimited allowance to bring in political figures into the church and, and for them to support their candidate and push for uh, power at a time when they were restricting uh, political donations from other sources. 
So I told him we would print the article, but I would uh, put a postscript explaining we don't support such a thing. And after we ran the article, I was coming down here to visit my parents in Orlando, and I said, I, I want to come talk to you. And he was very gracious, and I spent two hours in his office. You want to know what the first thing he said to me was? I found he, he was on vacation, and he came into the office just to talk, and we talked for about two hours. And he said, is it true, he says, that you think I have the mark of the beast because I keep Sunday? <laughs> what would you tell him? I said, not yet. <laughs> because that's true. Well, we need to be careful about that. Uh, you know, they can be wrong, but they, they could be sitting around the big table in heaven next to us uh, in their present state. But when it becomes a, a test, obviously, things are, the, the stakes are much, much higher. I also remember uh, a few years ago now, not too many, going to an all-day uh, seminar at Catholic University to uh, talk about religious liberty. It was advertised for Roman Catholics, but we got wind of it, so I went along a few weeks earlier and spoke to one of the organisers and, and got an invitation. It wasn't that they would keep you out at the door, but it was not pitched to anyone but, but Catholics. And I wanted to go to hear Cardinal Dolan speak. He's still not very much around, but at that time I, I was thinking that he might be the next pope because he's a very uh, uh, doctrinally conservative but socially liberal leader, and, and, and Rome is always trying to bring American Catholics into line. So we, I went along with a couple of laymen, and we sat right in front of him. There was a little round table below his lectern, and so he got up, he was the first speaker, and spoke very well on religious liberty. Obviously, as you'd expect from the point of Catholic charities and, and, and adoptions and so on, and I was close enough to see him doing something that many speakers do. He knew his topic, and he was just sort of buffering and dumping it out. And I could tell that he was thinking about something. And so after a while, he stopped, and he just looked at his mostly Catholic audience, and this is exactly what he said. He said, you know, there was a time when Roman Catholics would not have spoken this way about religious liberty. We once held that error has no rights. And then he sat down. In fact, he came off the podium and sat down next to me, all happy, got off his chest. And uh, I took the opportunity to talk to him and invited him to a protocol dinner, which he accepted. But then you know, it was embarrassing to other people. But he, what I thought was interesting, I said, you know, do you come to Washington much? We'd like to invite you. He says, but you won't have the right thing for me to drink, will you? And I said, we'll have something appropriate. But he's joking. But he's, he was saying, I know you. I know all about you. What was interesting, when, when they finished, they broke for 10 minutes or so, and then they reassembled, and they had a set program. There was a, a historian, Catholic charities, a theologian, and one other person, each with a set speech. Before they could begin, the audience started calling out, what was the cardinal talking about? What was he talking about? And so they had to take the time, it turned out the entire session, about an hour, to explain to that Catholic audience what he was saying. And the explanation for them is the same one that you need to know, but the logic of it is a little different for us. He told them that yes, that's, or they told the audience, it wasn't the cardinal anymore, that, that uh, 
That was indeed the historic position of the Roman Catholic Church, but with Vatican II, uh, which you, I'm sure you know about, with Vatican II, and in particular a document uh, put together by a Jesuit priest, Father McMurray, called Dignitatis Humana, where they accepted for the first time that you could choose your religion, change your religion, uh, follow your own conscience. For the first time, the Catholic Church accepted that. But what he didn't tell them, or what they didn't tell them, was that the last three popes who had some little dealings with it have tried to roll it back. And I can promise you, when the Vatican, even in a murmuring way, publicly says that they've rethought Vatican II, you're back to the default setting. Error has no rights. And what is error? Error could be keeping the wrong day, not acknowledging. On this Sunday law issue, it's very complicated in some ways, and I grew up being told that one day we would need to face the authorities, secular as well as religious, and give an account for our faith. And I'm sure that for many of us that will happen. For many Adventists in other countries, it's already happened. Uh, and, and we need to study, we need to have an argument. But I don't believe that there are biblical arguments that, that will be persuasive with this group anymore. It used to be you could proof text your way to show that Sabbath is the day. But I don't know if you notice, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't challenge your, your uh, Seventh-day Bible text anymore. In 1998, they came out with the document uh, entitled uh, uh, Dies, Domine, Dominus, uh, Dies Domine, the Day of the Lord. And uh, I'm sh short-circuiting some of the stuff I wanted to say, but this I wanted to share with you. This is what they wrote. And many Adventists read it, but I'm not sure this clicked. I even know the quote, and in the last couple of days I scanned through the document over and over again. I couldn't quite pick it up. It's near the end. It's actually paragraph 63. I mean, I don't know, paragraph, but, you know, block, text block 63. And this is what they wrote. Opposing the excessively legalistic interpretation of some of his contemporaries and developing the true meaning of the biblical Sabbath, Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, Mark 2.28, restores to the Sabbath observance its liberating character, carefully safeguarding the rights of God and the rights of man. Yeah, I mean, that's a reasonable sentence. This, then it says this, This is why Christians called as they are to preach the liberation won by the blood of Christ, felt that they had the authority to transfer the meaning of the Sabbath to the day of the resurrection. And that little weasel sentence is the key to everything. Yes, you need to have a biblical reason for your faith. Study to show yourself approved. You know, test the scriptures. No, I mean, that's a baseline thing. But I believe... When the, the conflict comes, the real issue is not whether you understand the text. The real issue is what authority are you dealing with? Uh, uh, remember Peter and, and John uh, in that great scene in Acts chapter 3, I think it is, where uh, they went to the temple precincts. First time, I think, after uh, 
the scene where Jesus basically precipitated the, the events that ended with his crucifixion. They went back there, healed the man at the gate beautiful. Everyone gathered around. The authorities were offended. And then they, they laid hold of them and they said, by what power or authority do you do this? What right? And, you know, it was a reason that I talked about even during the, the English Civil War and, and, and uh, John Bunyan. He had no authority to preach to the people in, in, the, in the streets. He didn't have a license. didn't matter what he was saying. He didn't have authority. The king, when they cut his head off, he said, you have no authority to deal with me because God gave me uh, my throne. You know, this issue of authority has been the issue all the way through. And, and about the papacy, we're, we're told that it will think to change times and laws. That's exercising authority. Jesus himself, when he spoke to the crowd, it says the people heard him gladly because he spoke as one having authority. And we've got to decide on what authority are we depending. Ellen White uh, is is very plain in in her advice that that when the Sunday law really comes full-blown in this country that we shouldn't directly challenge it in, in the sense of making trouble from ourselves. But we're not to go along with it. Uh, and, and she said that many people will cite uh, Paul in, in uh, Romans, I think it's Romans chapter 3, where he says, you know, the authorities are instituted by God. They exercise the sword not in vain. Well, that's true to a point. But, you know, they cut off Saul's, uh, Paul's head. Uh, so he was, uh, what I've said, you know, it's probably a mischaracterization, but it works for me. I've said those are... Uh, 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 a very uh, uh, subservient statements of Paul. They were anxious not to antagonize the authorities. But any reading of the Bible will tell you that most governments are not even close to godly governments. The real issue is that we are not to challenge them, not to differ with them, unless they ask us to do something against the, the commands of God, against our conscience. You know, living in the U.S., it's been fairly easy to sort of exercise that. But what if you were an Adventist living under Saddam Hussein's rule or uh, worse, in North Korea? Uh, you know, I'd say that, you know, this, this is a government of God. Of course it's not. It's opposed. North Korea is, uh, you know, will kill you if, you if you sing the praises of, of God. But within their sphere, they, they have a certain right because they've subverted it from God's rule but they have no right to ask us to, uh, to uh, uh, change our beliefs uh, just because of their authority. Uh, a few years ago, with uh, Dr. John Gratz, the two of us, well, we did several trips, and he used to joke about our, uh, our, uh, our uh, tours. We went, like I, when I was growing up, I uh, used to read the... Uh, or hear the stories of, of um, uh, Daddy Rabbit. I'm trying to think of his, Eric, Eric B. Hare, uh, at the Lakpahana Mission, and, and there in uh, what is now Myanmar and Burma. And so that was one of the countries we visited. Uh, when I first came to the U.S. as a teenager, we were in the Vietnam War, and I was dancing between conscription in Australia or here. So it was quite important to me. So uh, we went to Laos wanted to see what was going on with all of the, the forbidden bombing. You know, we dropped more bombs on Laos than on Germany in World War II. 
You wouldn't know about it. A country of only uh, about five million people. And one country that we visited that made an indelible impression on me was uh, Indonesia in the province of Ambon. Because John and I went down to a hearing in Washington on Vietnam. Again, because I was interested in Vietnam. And while we were there, we heard about a religious conflict in Ambon. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. 200 million Muslims. Well, 200 million people, 95% Muslims. But uh, Ambon, the province of Ambon, on the far uh, east of the country, uh, is almost 50% Christian and 50% Muslim. And we heard evidence that Al-Qaeda had fomented uh, religious violence there. And uh, over a simple altercation between a taxi driver and his fare, violence broke out. And when we heard the report, by that stage, 10, 15,000 people had been killed. Uh, when the violence erupted, the uh, police, who were mostly Christian, gave arms to the Christians. Military were called in. They were nearly all Muslims. They gave their arms to the Muslims, and it was on. Uh, we ended up going there, even though it was still under martial law, no tourists, no journalists allowed, but we got in somehow. Uh, our church leaders had fled. Uh, the local leaders were still there. I never felt threatened, but it was an interesting scenario, especially to drive from the airport to the capital city of 300,000 people. Just, I'd say, a third to a half of everything burned and destroyed. On one day, we visited with the mayor where he uh, thanked us for coming and said if we'd come during the violence, we'd have been killed on the spot. Interesting. Uh, then we uh, travelled a little further and met with the Minister of Religion from this uh, province, Dr. Mara Sebesi, a Muslim doctor, and a uh, very nice fellow. Uh, his wife served us drinks, which was highly unusual. In those countries, the Women are usually kept locked out in the back room. You won't see them. But she was a medical doctor and very uh, socially uh, amenable to talking with Christians. And after we shared for a while and he'd quoted the Bible prolifically about Jesus being love and so on, Dr. Marissa Bessie leaned close and he said, I need your advice for the most pressing problem facing us today. Now, you know, I couldn't wait. What's this going to be? There's just ruin outside. Even the, uh, the, the regional college of tens of thousands of students was burned and abandoned. The uh, government assembly hall burned and abandoned. Uh, it was just like World War II. What's the problem? And he started to tell us a story that luckily I'd read in the paper in Jakarta. We were there early in the year, and he said, early the year before, a Christian missionary had arisen uh, preaching powerfully that the Lord Jesus Christ was to come in November of that same year. And he said tens of thousands of people had sold their goods or given them away and fled with him to one of the outer islands, and there's thousands of islands in the Indonesian archipelago. They'd fled with him there to await the return of Jesus. And he says, and he didn't come. And he says, and now they want this land, their land back. They want everything back. He says, what do we do? This is the biggest problem facing us. And to me, it was exactly what Ellen White writes about in Great Controversy, where she says, as, as the natural calamities, fires in California at the moment, you know, it was sandy a little while ago, uh, you know, things, haven't you noticed it? They're increasing. And it's not just because the intercommunication is getting better. The world is out of whack. And, and as these things increase, Ellen White says that they will start to believe it's God's punishment, and they uh, make religious moves to sort of 
you know, placate the, the, the angry God. And then if you offend them by not worshipping on the day, suddenly you are the ones to blame. It's quite amazing to me how, how in that scenario, this little Christian group were the cause of all of this, this problem. In fact, I should have known the logic, but it's when we heard the hearing in Washington, there was a beautiful uh, scene at first, a sad-faced elderly gentleman with a Sakana cap, uh, one of the Muslim, world, Muslim leaders, he said, you know, we're not violent people. We're not violent people, he says. And, the people, and I saw the, Elliot Abrams was, one of, was the chairman, and I saw him nodding along, yeah. And he says, we had no problem till the Christians came. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we had no problem till these people objected to Sunday worship. Um, in 2015, something happened, though, that, that shook me and still resonates in my experience. And I'm a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist. I uh, can't imagine not, not uh, uh, continuing with all that we've been told prophetically. And unfortunately, I know a lot of the warts on our system. It's a human endeavor, and it's, it's, it's got a spotty record. But in 2015, uh, a historic event happened in the United States where the Pope of Rome spoke to a joint session of Congress. Now, there's no historical precedent for that. Uh, uh, I, as, as I say, I, I, I love American history, and America is an admirable country in most regards, but it's not a perfect country. And part of its history is violent and obsessive anti-Catholicism. You have to recognize that. Even the Ku Klux Klan, which is remembered for its direct uh, racism against uh, ex-slaves, because that's when it really came to power after the Civil War. But it was equally violent and adamant against Catholics and Jews. Right? Uh, and, and in fact, I, even going further back than that, I remember reading the letter correspondence between Jefferson and Adams two bitter political enemies that corresponded with each other till they died on the same day, 50 years after the Declaration of Independence. And uh, as Adams died, he says, but he still lives. And Jefferson, unknown to him, had died a little earlier. But when they discussed Christianity, whether it would survive in this country, Adams, Chris, uh, Jefferson said, no, it isn't going to survive. Uh, and, and Adams said, uh, yes, it will. He says, but first... That Hindu Kabbalistic system known as Roman Catholicism must die. At present it has a mortal wound, but such is its strength that it may last yet 200 years. Interesting. That was the view held here. And it, and it worked its way out through uh, a common means as, as violence and prejudice. So how come the Pope of Rome could lecture the, uh, the, the, the legislature on, on a once Protestant country? It's an amazing thing. Uh, one of our good contacts in the Senate was uh, Senator uh, Santorum, a deeply dedicated Roman Catholic and, and a wonderful human being. When he ran for president, he made a huge uh, shock in the media because he said publicly, he says, Protestantism is absent in America today. That's what Rome thinks. And so the Pope came, facilitated by the fact that the majority and minority leaders were both Roman Catholic, so there was no objection, but the first religious leader ever to speak to Congress. The other uh, 
uh, people that addressed with people like Lafayette, uh, uh, of course, Netanyahu a few times, uh, Winston Churchill, I think, twice, never a religious leader. In fact, about a year before that, um, about a year before that, uh, someone had suggested the uh, Dalai Lama, and that was quickly nixed because he was too controversial. Uh, you know, go figure. But I will never forget standing in the audience uh, at the front of the Capitol, which I always think is the back, watching on the Videotron the Pope uh, speaking to Congress and, and, and realising with a start that he's baiting this Protestant country. And I've never read this anywhere. Because he started, but what he did was he, he started off trying to inculcate uh, Catholic uh, leaders into the American experience. And the way he did it was he had two iconic Americans, Abraham Lincoln and uh, uh, Martin Luther King, and then uh, two Catholics, a nun known for her, uh, for her uh, uh, socialism, she was a communist, and a monk who was known for his Eastern mysticism. Very interesting. But what offended me, and I wasn't even born here, he kicks off with Abraham Lincoln. There was something in the... Everything's rehearsed. It was not spontaneous. There was something in the chamber that there was a picture of Lincoln or a statue or something. And so he, he launched off into Abraham Lincoln. Does anyone remember how he was killed? My, my two children are college age now, but I remember reading their high school history books, and about all it says is John Wilkes Booth, a frustrated actor uh, with slight southern sympathies, or southern sympathies, but not great involvement with the South, shot him, you know, and, and he was captured and killed. You know, that's only the half of the story, and you don't have to go to Czech publications or, or Father Chinakwe or all of these fa fantastical things that may or not be true. Go to the plain history. Matthew Brady has photographs of the hanging of six of the 11 conspirators that they caught at the time. There were 11 conspirators. It was in Mary Surrett's boarding house. All of them but one who was in the process of being uh, indoctrinated were Roman Catholics. There were Jesuit priests. It was a plot to decapitate the government because on the same night, uh, Secretary Seward was stabbed and left for dead. Uh, another uh, plotter was to kill General Grant, that misfired, and another was to kill the Vice President. It was massive. And the only Southern agent of the group was Mary Surrett's brother. He was out of town when it happened, and he lit out for Canada, where he was sheltered by uh, Jesuit priests, and he made his way to Rome and joined the Pope's bodyguard. Meanwhile, the Pope was railing against uh, Abraham Lincoln in the North. Amazing. Now, this Pope had nothing to do with it. But you would think they would have a little shame about it. I think he's just waving it. See if they notice. They're asleep. I remember when Tony Blair visited uh, a few years ago, pr pr the Prime Minister of England, they took him through the White House and showed him where in the War of 1812 the detachment of redcoats burned the, uh, well, pillaged uh, the White House and, and uh, Madison's wife burned some state papers in the fireplace and the... the the ashes, or not the ashes, the smoke stains are still there. And I remember him being interviewed and he says, well, he says, all I can say is sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, at least he, he acknowledged it and brushed it off. But, you know, we, we were witness to something quite incredible. But more important, what lay behind his speech was a document issued that early that year called uh, Laudato Si'. 
And I want to share with you a little bit of that because I believe this is the roadmap for the future as it relates to the papacy. Laudato Si starts by saying that the earth is like our sister and she's dying. And unless we do something, we will all die. And he prefaced the, the document by saying it's not the Catholics, it's not the Christians, it's to the entire world. It's a global document. And he lays out a pretty persuasive argument, unless you're a hardcore climate uh, change denier, but even, even that, I think, is, is, is just bad PR because it's patently obvious the climate is changing. You could argue about what's causing it, but the earth is out of whack. As the Bible says, the earth is waxing old like a garment, groaning for its redemption. Right? So the Pope says, uh, you know, we, we need to do something. We're all going to die. Stakes are pretty high. When, when, when survival is at stake, you know, as the Donner Party in, in, uh, in uh, Washington State discovered back in the early American time, you know, you eat your, eat your dead to survive. I mean, anything goes, right? And this, I want to read you four paragraphs. He says, the Lord, this was early on, and it's the subtext to the secular argument. This is a theological line. It says, the laws found in the Bible dwell on relationships, not only among individuals, but also with other living beings. Along these same lines, rest on the seventh day is meant not only for human beings, but also so that your ox and your donkey may have rest. In other words, this earth... We, uh, our custody of the earth needs to be under the same regimen as keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. Disregard for the duty to cultivate and maintain a proper relationship with my neighbour for whose care and custody I am responsible ruins my relationship with my own self, with others, with God and with the earth. When all these relationships are neglected, when justice no longer dwells in the land, the Bible tells us that life itself is endangered. We see this in the story of Noah, where God threatens to do away with humanity because of its constant failure to fulfill the requirements of justice and peace. These ancient stories, full of symbolism, bear witness to a conviction which we today share that everything is interconnected and that genuine care for our own lives and our relationships with nature is inseparable from fraternity, justice and faithfulness to others. And if you haven't picked it up by now, the code word or code term that the Catholic Church initiated, but you hear it in politics all the time now, is the common good. That's right. Or putting it in Bible terms, remember, better that one man die than that the nation should perish. Or that a little people should knuckle under rather than grant them the right to follow their conscience. And it says, although the wickedness of man was great in the earth, Genesis 6-5, and the Lord was sorry that he'd made man on the earth, Nonetheless, through Noah, who remained innocent and just, God decided to open a path of salvation. In this way, he gave humanity the chance of a new beginning. All it takes is one good person to restore hope. The biblical tradition clearly shows that this renewal entails recovering and respecting the rhythms inscribed in nature by the hand of the Creator. We see this, for example, in the law of the Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested from his work. He commanded Israel to set aside each seventh day as a day of rest, a Sabbath. You realize he's made the Sabbath the litmus test for the survival of the world. And of course, just that little reading from Dias Domine. 
They've neatly segued that across to Sunday, but it's a Sabbath principle. And at the end of the document, it then exultantly says, as we journey toward that eternal Sabbath. Uh, we're in a catch-22. Uh, uh, you know, I, the other day I, I answered a letter from an irate Adventist and I said, you know, you've made me very happy that I've chosen to retire. I'm, I'm tired of these arguments. But uh, they, they were saying, you know, liberties speaking politically. It's nonsense. We speak about political issues. We're never called to be partisan. Uh, Ellen White was very particular and, and Jesus uh, was clear in his day. You know, we, you take up the sword, you die by the sword. And Ellen White said that any pastor or minister who is involved in partisan party politics should resign or be fired. But these issues are inherently political. Of course you talk about political things, but we're not partisan. And, and in Liberty, and with, with my editorship and then others before, you know, we call out whatever regime or, or public official is is either acting positively or negatively toward freedom principles. And I've got to tell you, at the moment, we're at a hazardous point. Uh, 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 President Trump, just barely out of office, uh, uh, was the ultimate Trojan horse for many Adventists. And, and a great delusion has come upon them because they think this is you know, the coming of a great Cyrus. And as I said to someone, he's not Cyrus, nor is he even a, a sinful saviour like David Koresh thought he was. All you've got in res, re, as a result is the Munich Beer Hall push. It's the beginning of troubles, not the end of it. Uh, I, I listened to one of the religious uh, uh, um, networks not too long ago, and one of the prophets, you know, there's prophets out the kazoo, which also we were told that, you know, false spiritualism will characterise the, the final revivals, false revival. Uh, and this prophet, with a straight face, he was a fellow who looked to be like about 50 years old, he said that he had seen, been shown this vision where the great crowd, it sounded to me like the crowd in heaven, marriage supper of the Lamb, but it was a great crowd all gathered around the, uh, the, uh, uh, the mall in Washington. And... Uh, uh, an angel came down from heaven and blew the shofar. And then, then President Trump came out of a secret door on the Washington Monument. And as he came out, the angel poured oil on his head and then they had a donkey prepared and they uh, took him toward the Capitol. And meanwhile, another angel came down with a, 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 an arrow on its, on its back and, and started shooting all the legislators. You know, what sort of prophecies are that? You know... It doesn't take much biblical uh, perception to know that this is a false prophecy, but people have been gulled by this. Uh, and, and there was a lot of easy talk about religion. And, and, you know, we endorsed it in liberty. When the president said religious liberty is vital and important, we printed those words. But you need to have a little discernment. And, 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 and it should have been obvious to anyone truly jealous for religious freedom what we were dealing with, have been dealing with, is religious entitlement, religious privileges for a certain group, but not for everybody. Religious entitlement was what we had in the Dark Ages. The Catholic Church was as entitled as it ever got to be. But uh, the, the, the heretics, the dissidents, you know, they were only entitled to the, the flames and the, and the auto de fe. Uh, so that was that. And then we come forward. Where are we now? You know, Pre President uh, B 
Biden, you know, I, I feel sorry for him. He should be retired. But, you know, he's not all evil any more than any of the others. But the vulnerability with him, he's a Roman Catholic, which is guaranteed under the Constitution. Remember, other than the First Amendment, only half of the First Amendment is on religion. It says that Congress shall make no law establishing religion, nor prevent the free exercise thereof. The only other thing in the Constitution says no religious test for public office. So it's not in itself a bad thing whatsoever, but it's a very telling thing for you and I when we see the Supreme Court so loaded down with Roman Catholics, so few Protestants. Uh, when, you, when you see both parties acting as though uh, you, you can stack the, the, the deck with, with, with justices who will do your bidding. I mean... Either way, that's presuming that you've got corrupt judges, which is a characteristic of the end of time. But here we've got a a Roman Catholic who, good man, I hope, but the Roman Catholic bishops uh, only a couple of years ago said very publicly that they made a huge mistake with President Kennedy not forcing him to adhere to the mandates of the church. And they said they will not make that mistake twice. And the evidence of that already is, is uh, President Biden has been uh, denied the sacraments by some of his, the priests and of his, his religion. He's under severe pressure. Uh, he's made a political decision, he and, and most of his party, to uh, uh, make some effort toward addressing the environmental problems. So where does that put him? That puts him in the playground of uh, Laudato Si. So I think either way right now, and I've said this for years, we're at past critical mass in the United States. The knowledge of the Constitution is, as the Bible says, about the time of the judges. The word of the God, word of the Lord was rare in those days. The Constitution is rare. The last expert in Congress was Senator Byrd, you know, the old Ku Klux Klan expert. And, and, and there was a desperate scene not too many years ago following an emergency where the members of Congress and the Senate assembled on the, the steps and, and uh, one sentence here and there went around and recited the uh, Constitution. Very sad. You know, if I was a grade school teacher, I wouldn't give them a passing grade. They, they mispronounced and omitted and so on. They clearly were not familiar with it. We've had elections where people are not familiar with it, settled by the Supreme Court rather than the way the Constitution says. And, and, and Ellen White's comment is very pertinent. She says, when this country allows uh, uh, the people of, of faith to move upon the government to enact their decrees, enforce their decrees, she says, then national ruin will follow. And we're clearly at that stage. And... and you know, we're talking here about the Sunday law, but don't think it's the only thing. It's just, as Ellen White says, the, 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 the issue that things will eventually revolve around. Because, in fact, as I was even thinking on this, it's sort of amazing that both the Catholic Church and the Protestant rethinkers don't sort of notice how odd it is in dismissing Judaism and the old covenant and all that went with it. The only thing that they're prepared to strike out of the stone is the Sabbath. You would think that's the one part you would have to keep. You know, if God, if it's so important to God, you know, how can we decide arbitrarily this one? Obviously, they're not about to take out murder or, or you know, or, or, or coveting your neighbor's wife and all the rest, certainly not, you know, worship of God. But this is integral to God's will. But it, 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 it is going to be a matter of authority. Who is going to accept this, this uh, 
this ultimate question of authority. I, I wanted to ask you a few questions, so I'll, I'll go to something that I planned at the end. I don't know how many of you saw the uh, promotional video that we had for our last campaign, and I shared there something that I think is important for Adventists to be aware of. Uh, I'll go back again to my allusion to the British-English Civil War. Uh, uh, um, John Bunyan, who, who, at least when I was growing up, was a central uh, uh, icon of of Christian faith. John Bunyan was a soldier in that Civil War. He was a foul-mouthed libertine at that point, but later on he got true religion. By the way... Everything is interconnected. If you've read Liberty or anything about religious liberty, you'll find that an icon of of religious liberty understanding in the US was Roger Williams. Roger Williams was the informally adopted son of Edward Cook, or Coke it's spelled, who was the Chief Justice of England and had challenged the king even before the Civil War and came up with the statement that an Englishman's home is his castle. He spent some time in the tower for challenging the king, but uh, uh, Cook was, was a precursor to the uh, challenge between Parliament and the king. Uh, 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 then after him, when the Civil War erupted, uh, Roger Williams became a friend of Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector, who the man that led the army, that led the charge against the king, cut his head off and became de facto king. Uh, It came naturally to this country. And the good part of it was it was a Protestant sensibility that understood that that the old Romanish ways were not to be be carried forward anymore. The downside of it was it brought this triumphalist view of of exceptionalism. You know, to this day in England, they sing um, from a poem by uh, William Blake, you know, did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's green pastures? Uh, you've got to be aware of this sort of stuff. Uh, uh, America has been blessed, but it's only blessed when it does the right things. It's not a promised land that whatever it does, you don't have to apologize for it. You know, there's nonsensical uh, perversions of this religious view that we've inherited from England. And I believe even Ellen White flirted with it because, after all, she and the the early Adventist church, you know, they, they were true believers. But think about the context when Adventism began. Uh, there was the great dislocation of, of people leaving the farms of necessity going to the big cities of the north. It was basically America's version of the, the Industrial Revolution. The south was already floundering. Uh, in fact, if there hadn't been the, the Civil War, uh, there would have been economic uh, uh, catastrophe for the south because mechanization was, was changing the needs on, on the plantations. Uh, uh, you can watch the Westerns. On, you know, there's a channel now that has full-time Westerns. But that was the reality of Ellen White's time. They were barely putting the railways across. Some of those trips that Ellen White took across, they were during the Indian War era. There was a great fight between capital and labour. I mean, now we, we uh, you know, enjoy a fairly good standard of living. You can get a wage. That wasn't the case back then. There were more private police, Pinkertons, owned by the big uh, corporations than there were in the US military. And they regularly would send a trainload of these thugs to uh, uh, butt heads and shoot and kill and do whatever it took to get the striking, often miners. They were the, one of the, 
the uh, ones that objected the most. It was a country in turmoil. And in fact, our church was uh, founded, if you look at the date, right in the middle of the Civil War. And it decided very significantly, even though Ellen White says God's uh, displeasure and and punishment rested on the South for its uh, embrace of slavery, you'd think that would be justification to go go off fighting. That's when we established our non-combatancy stance. Uh, And curiously enough, at the same time, uh, on on the temperance issue, and temperance, my father told me, he was head of the temperance department at the GC, temperance used to be allied with our religious liberty. They're one and the same. Early issue of liberty would have the temperance principles there. Uh, And Ellen White said the temperance work was so important we would have voted, if necessary, on the Sabbath. So the, the response that we make to the, the law is, is varied. And the principle, obviously, is it's not, as Jesus pointed out in his life on earth, it's not illegal to do good on the Sabbath day. And if holding back a great evil by voting on the Sabbath is the result, do it. But if there's a great evil of someone compelling you to worship on a fantastical day of their own making, you don't obey it. That's simple. We're not called to be revolutionaries, but we're called to be loyalists to God. And, and you know, that's where the, the, the push is going to come. And I've got to tell you, from the, this is me alone, not an official view, and I'm in the process of retiring anyhow. I think our church is flirting with disaster to go to sleep on command in the COVID uh, problems. I mean, I, I, grew up, I grew up on the stories of missionaries going to where there was... In fact, I've been to areas where... the, 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 the the, uh, the, the lepers were, was, leprosy was endemic. Uh, I, I serialized a story in Australia about one of the early missionaries to Malaita where uh, they died of yellow fever, I think it was. There were great threats. There's always a threat to spreading the truth. And, and we're not caused, called to do stuff, you know, just blindly without cautions. But there's things you can do. Back in the missionary era, of course, they wouldn't, uh, you know, knowingly go totally into the, the, the bed of disease, but they had to go to that area to spread things, uh, to spread the gospel. And today, uh, I don't understand, to be honest. We're still all, this is wonderful that you're here, but our church is all but, you know, in sleep mode, like the computer. Uh, the, the last year, you know, I used to go into the office a couple of days a week. Rare that there was one body, other body on the floor. Rare. I mean, how could that happen? Uh, in, in our religious liberty work, we deal with, deal with a lot of legislation. And I challenged the lawyers early on because there's a standard boilerplate thing they add to all legislation, even things like the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, yeah, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which got through but was declared unconstitutional because it was... Uh, depending on uh, the authority of the state to regulate, of the federal government to regulate between the states. So it's now being passed on a state level. But that, like all others, it has at the end that this is what's passed, this freedom, this right, and it says unless there is a compelling governmental interest. And look at history. Whenever something was wanted by the authorities, when was it less than compelling in their eyes? Uh, We need to understand that that if we allow others to tell us how to worship God, there's always going to be someone that has another view. And it's never to be compelling in our eyes. Uh, But anyhow, I I want to uh, at least 
conclude most of my comments by sharing this section from something that was written. I must have had it in my hand. Something that was written during this period, here it is, uh, of civil war in England, or just after the civil war. The second greatest literary figure in the English language is John Milton. An Adventist should read John Milton. Uh, When Ellen White was writing The Great Controversy, J.N. Andrews came visiting one day and he says, Sister White, he says, a lot of what you're writing sounds like John Milton. Have you ever read it? And she says, no. So he says, I'll bring you a copy. And he brought a copy and uh, we don't really know. Ellen White says she put it on a back shelf. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. What I think at the very least... Much of what she, Andrews, and all the others had in common in their Protestant culture came from uh, Milton. Milton set the fabric of, of English and American Protestantism. Uh, uh, There's powerful stuff that he wrote, and in essence, he shared the great controversy theme. Most people don't read it outside of college assignments, but toward the end of his long book, Uh, Paradise Lost, which tells merely the story of the rebellion in heaven, the creation of man, and the temptation and fall in the garden. Uh, That's the Paradise Lost. And then Paradise Regained, he tells the story of the temptation in the wilderness and Christ's victory on our behalf, which, again, Ellen White parallels by the book Confrontation, or the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Uh, Powerful works, all of them. And at the end of uh, Paradise Lost, Milton has this dialogue between uh, Adam and Eve and and, uh, the angel Michael, which is a problematic thing for for us, but that's another question. But uh, here, this is what Adam says. But say, if our deliverer up to heaven must reascend, what will betide the few, his faithful, left among the unfaithful herd, the enemies of truth, Who then shall guide his people? Who defend? Will they not deal worse with his followers than with him they dealt? Be sure they will, said the angel. But from heaven he to his own a comforter will send. The promise of the Father who shall dwell his spirit within them and the law of faith working through love upon their hearts shall write to guide them in all truth and also arm with spiritual armour, able to resist Satan's assaults and quench his fiery darts. What man can do against them, not afraid, though to the death, against such cruelties with inward consolations recompensed and oft supported so as shall amaze their proudest persecutors? For the Spirit powered first on his apostles, whom he sends to evangelize the nations. Then on all baptized shall them with wondrous gifts endue, as did the Lord before them. Thus they win great numbers of each nation to receive with joy the tidings brought from heaven. At length, their ministry performed and race well run, their doctrine and their story written left, they die. But in their room, as they forewarn, wolves shall succeed for teachers, grievous wolves who all the sacred mysteries of heaven to their own vile advantage shall turn, of lucre and ambition and the truth with superstitions and traditions taint, left only in those written records pure, though not but by the Spirit understood. 
Then they shall seek to avail themselves of names, places and titles and with these to join secular power, though feigning still to act by spiritual, to themselves appropriating the spirit of God, promised alike and given to all believers. And from that pretense, spiritual laws by carnal power shall force on every conscience, laws which none shall find left in them and ruled, or what the spirit within shall on the heart engrave. What will they then but force the spirit of grace itself and bind his consort liberty? What but unbuild his living temples, built by faith to stand, their own faith, not another's? For on earth who against faith and conscience can be heard infallible? Yet many will presume, whence heavy persecution shall arise on all who in the worship persevere of spirit and truth. The rest, far greater part, will deem in outward rites and specious forms religion satisfied. Truth shall retire, be struck with slanderous darts, and works of faith rarely be found. So shall the world go on, to good malignant, to bad men benign, under her own weight groaning, till the day appear of respiration to the just and vengeance to the wicked, at return of him, so lately promised to thy aid, the woman's seed, obscurely then foretold, now amply anon, thy Saviour and thy Lord, last in the clouds from heaven to be revealed, in glory of the Father, to dissolve Satan with his perverted world, then raise from the conflagrant mass, purged and refined, new heavens, new earth, ages of endless date, founded in righteousness and peace and love, to bring forth fruits, joy and eternal bliss." Seems like that could be an Adventist sermon. And I, to me, that's a vindication of what we believe. I, I, I know in great controversy, that's what Ellen White was trying to do. We are not an isolated, as they will try to tell us, an isolated, quirky production of, of American uh, frontier thinking. We are in the stream of those who have been seeking for, for truth and for, for freedom from compulsion. Uh, and, and we really need to speak to the world as if we have authority. Uh, you know, wonderful things are happening in, 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 within Adventism and many wonderful things are reported here. So it's not all bad, but I think it's sort of patently obvious that in the larger scheme of things at the moment, certainly in the United States, and I could include Australia where I'm from, in the Western world, we're a pretty invisible group. Uh, uh, it might be thrust upon us, but usually people that haven't prepared or don't have the right mindset, when the crisis comes, like the, the disciples, they flee into the garden and stand and, and, and deliver. Uh, so somehow we need to decide that we have a message for this time. Uh, now, you know, the, yes, the Sunday question is the issue. But, you know, is, is, is it really just about us saying, you know, I will worship on... It, it, you know, if we're not keeping the, the, the Sabbath properly now, what difference does it make if we, if we argue with someone else? We, we really should be uh, defined by people who are preparing for the coming king. And we've got this talisman of his leadership, of his authority. Uh, I'm, I'm quite sure that I'm, I'm onto something with this authority question. 
Even the great schism within Christianity that in the West we really talk about between the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church, that was all about authority. Uh, Rome tried to force on the Eastern Orthodox Christians, uh, you know, tied about with traditions as they are too, but tried to force on them the idea that the Bishop of Rome is, you know, is God's vice regent and he can thunder from the ecclesiastical clouds and they should do what they want, what he wants, and they just wouldn't accept it. Uh, you know, along with a few other things like the, uh, the, uh, the Trinity and, 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 and different aspects of the liturgy, that's the sum of it. A great split within Christendom. Ellen White says that uh, the Roman Catholic Church is just what it always has been, the apostasy of the end times. Uh, and yet, ironically, wonderful people in, in, in the group. Uh, there's a refreshing in Roman Catholicism, not because of the papacy, you know, I don't understand many things about life, but I've got developed theories, but I cannot, for the life of me, come up with a theory as to why an organisation that's being exposed for the most corrupt, debased, and consistently uh, 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 abusive behaviour. You know, the, the day doesn't go by that something's revealed in, uh, on, on the, the priestly behaviour. How could an organisation like that be going from political strength to political strength? It's, it's, a, it's a miracle of perfidity. You know, the devil's behind it. But we're told that things will be revealed. There's another document, uh, and I'm subverting to myself to another talk that I've given. But there's another document that Rome came out, Rome came out with called uh, Memory and Reconciliation. Uh, and I, for years I used to read all this stuff, and they're very significant. Uh, in this document, they attempted to remove themselves from all of their sins. They apologised, we'll put it in quotes, for the uh, Inquisition, for the persecution of the Jews, for the Crusades, on and on. Uh, and it got pretty good press around the world. And, and if you uh, publicly criticise Rome for those things, they just brush them off. You know, we've, we've apologised. But there's a very telling uh, segment about halfway through and it draws an analogy. It says, just as Christ, uh, holy and undefiled and incapable of error, took upon himself the sins of fallen human beings, so the magisterium of the church, and that's sort of their inner authority, the magisterium, so the magisterium of the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, holy and undefiled and incapable of error, will apologize for the sins of fallen human beings. Uh, that's heavy stuff. <laughs> coming from, from all of these abuse cases. And, you know, it's just the beginning of things. And, and, you know, we're living in a society where there's corruption on every hand, so it would be foolish to say it's only in Rome. But it's endemic because they're, they're fighting against nature. They're, they're compelling people. They're giving privilege over, the, they think, the very souls and, and, and spiritual destiny of other people. And, and it's a bad thing in life to give someone control over the conscience of another person. You know, at Auschwitz, you know, we saw what that happened, or with the Nazis. Uh, and it'll be the same in our era if we ever allow uh, any government or any group of even Christian politicians to take over. As I, as I said at one point, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still sort of shocked at some of the discussions I've had with some Adventists lately. And I hope they're not representative of too many people, but they're there. And one guy called up the other day, and I thought he was 
just wanting to discuss an article, but he started on the line, you know, governments have a right to enforce religious behaviour, he said. And I said, well, that's sort of the role of the Catholic Church or their line. I said, we don't buy that. Oh, yes. You know, and then he quotes some Bible texts misapplied from the Old Testament and the theocratic era. We have to support a government that will compel people to obey. And to me, that's, that's a great deception. Uh, I, I'm going to say something, but it'll get me into trouble, but at this point, I can't be... Fu- you know, in our era, it's become uh, sort of off the table often to even draw any analogies between uh, the, the, the Nazi experience and today. Uh, and all historical analogues fall down because things are very different. But human nature is much the same, so... You know, if you look at the way things develop, you can learn some lessons. I, I first got my radar up a few years ago after the Gulf War, uh, when things started changing here. Well, sorry, not after the Gulf War, after 9/11. Uh, on about four occasions, elderly couples, German couples, came up to me and they said they were very worried because what was happening reminded them of their experience in Germany just before the Nazis took over. It got my attention, so I watched it. Uh, I remember reading in the years just before the war uh, a Sabbath school director or an associate director from our German Union toured uh, the United States and uh, things began to filter back to the general conference that she was saying some things that were a bit troubling. So they eventually intercepted her and it turned out she was a personal friend of Joseph Goebbels and was promoting Nazism uh, among Adventists. Well, so it shouldn't have surprised the church that that just like the Lutherans and the Catholics in Germany, our church swore fealty to the Nazis because, after all, Hitler has said that that, uh, religion was the the basis of the Nazi regime. He said that, if if you haven't ever seen it. And he also said that that Protestantism and Catholicism lay at the basis of all their national endeavours. Politicians do lie, after all. Uh, And... and, uh, Unfortunately, those photographs of the swastika behind the, the, uh, the lectern uh, on, on the, the uh, altar in many Adventist churches, which is one of the reasons that it, it gives me the shivers when I see even American flags behind it. It shouldn't be there. Within a church structure, this is land and property dedicated to God. There's a residual thought, even in our era, of the sanctuary of, of, of a church. They rarely will arrest people inside a church. In the medieval period, they couldn't come in within. And even back in the Old Testament, grab hold of the horns of the altar. Uh, it reached a point in Germany where, where our, uh, our organization turned in the, uh, the draft resistors. The, uh, you know, they were an offshoot, but only really on these issues, not doctrinally. And uh, some of them went to the gas chambers because of it. Uh, it's human nature. And again, Ellen White says that the worst enemies when the crunch comes on the Sunday law will be those within. Because the others don't know you. Uh, It's someone that knows you and disagrees with you that can really prick where it hurts. Uh, It troubles me a lot after these letters. I I, I know now that... I, I knew it intellectually before, but now I know experientially there are enemies ready to attack the, the standard things that we have held and believed for a long time. And 
you know, we can't change our behaviour much because of them. But I think this is the moment of truth. Are we really going to stand by our principles or are we just going to fade back permanently? Uh, Clifford Goldstein, who preceded me on Liberty magazine, uh, doesn't mind conflict. <laughs> uh, and I noticed just a couple of days ago in, in a publication I didn't even know existed, the General Conference Executive Committee newsletter, he wrote something. I haven't had a chance to check with him. The same old wine of Babylon. Wine, W-H-I-N-E. Uh, he's obviously came ac come across the same thing. People are saying our Adventist viewpoint is quirky, it, you know, is either just Ellen White or nothing to do with Ellen White. You know, they're basically saying all things continue. You know, why are we pushing this thing? It's uncomfortable to be an Adventist. This is not the time to have second thoughts, in my view. Uh, one thing that I, I've said over and over again in afternoon meetings uh, on religious liberty is, you know, I can't know, you can't know when uh, the Sunday law will come, when probation closes. Ella White, in spite of her and the other pioneers' mistakes, they did set times. Uh, and, and, and like the apostles, they felt that it was right upon them. But she says very intelligently, and I believe inspired, she says, no time prophecy after 1844, right? And I believe it's, it's like this, it could come quicker, or longer, depending on human dynamic, and we're part of it. If, if, if we get serious uh, and evangelize more aggressively, I think we'll shorten the time of trouble. It's that simple. Uh, but uh, I've, I've often said in these afternoon meetings, I can't know the time, you can't know it. But one thing I believe fervently, and I'll stake my life on it, the world that you and I know is about to pass away. This is the end of life as we know it. Not necessarily tomorrow, but it's not just COVID. The, the whole economic structure, post-World War II economic structure, the dominance of the US over China and others, gone. And a lot of things in history, in fact, most things in history, slowly tick along. But when it's suddenly visible, it appears very sudden and there are catastrophic changes. There's many things bottled up. And, and one, which Ellen White speaks about, the Bible speaks about, is we've had a little time of peace, at least in the West. You know, there's a lot of wars in different places, but no world war. Why has there not been a world war? You know, in a cosmic sense, we can say the restraining hand of, of the angels. But the practical reason is, is obvious if you think about it. Uh, with the rise of a technological need in modern societies and, and the trade between countries, most countries have a vested interest in stability. They, their own, the harm to their own country is greater if things break down. Like right now, you can hardly buy a new car because the chips from one factory are gone, right? Uh, you think if there were the need for convoys like in World War II, uh, the Air Force wouldn't be able to fly within a week or two, I can promise you. I, I remember uh, Iran when we cut ties with them. They had hundreds of phantom fighters. They were all grounded in the war with Iraq. They didn't have parts. Uh, the world needs, each country needs each other, but COVID has in almost, within a year, has removed that need for interdependence. It's broken the system. War will come. War will come. And Ellen White says that what we failed to do in a time of uh, great uh, relative ease, uh, and then she says, and means that we failed, to, this is ASI's moment, 
because I, I know there's, there's a great commitment each AS, ASI uh, convention. But you know, what we fail to give to the church, she says we will throw at the church, it'll be useless, useless. Uh, I'm sure there's people here that understand economics better than me, but I, I studied enough in college to know that if you almost double the, the, the liquid money supply, you half its value. Whether it was borrowed money or in this case, just typewriter money. We're headed for the Weimar Republic, or the Weimar Republic, rather. Uh, a great and fearful time is upon us, and the Sunday law is part of it, but we shouldn't be one-noters on prophecy. There are many things. The forgetfulness of the principles of... of uh, remember the two horns. What is it? Protestantism and uh, republicanism. Both almost gone in this country. Uh, I wrote an editorial years and years ago called Convergence. And I'd been to a few communist countries and a few other despotic places and lived here and in Australia and so on. And it seemed to me that the despotisms were uh, becoming more westernized. And you know, it's foolish to think of China as you know, uh, Maoism. It's gone way beyond that. It's a hybrid. And so they're loosening up. We're tightening up. At some point, there'll be no practical difference. At some point, and I think we're there, we're living in George Orwell's 1984, where you know yesterday's truth is today's falsehood, and especially if you watch certain channels, it's, it's easy to take it. You know, it's amazing, and and the Bible says people believe a lie, and and we've got to pr pray for for God's discernment so that the even the the uh, the elect are not deceived by this. Well, God bless you. Oh, we've got a little bit of time, but I, don't, I wanted to let out early because I noticed there's only half an hour for supper after this. Does anyone have a question? Uh, have I bothered anybody by what I've said? I've had my, uh, my vaccine and, and, and I feel like it stimulated my back troubles. Not that I had a bad back, but I didn't. Yeah, but uh, you know, these issues have been around a long time. We, we tried to run an article. I actually had Cliff write it on vaccines way before it was an issue. And the lawyers said that the hospitals would stop supporting Liberty if we did that. It's a very contentious issue. But when I was a kid, I remember the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses going to court on this sort of stuff. And, you know, like a lot of things, you think religious freedom, I mean, a matter of pure principle, like uh, 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 Daniel, obviously, you go to the lines or, or, or you compromise. But a lot of things on religion, you have to balance your need to be accommodated versus uh, society's uh, greater good. And if, you know, if you were uh, carrying a live plague, you, would, you, you couldn't make a moral argument that I have a right to go and infect everyone. So... You know, this is a multifaceted thing. About the best thing I could say on it, I'm old enough to remember you couldn't travel internationally without your yellow book with all of the mandated vaccines. It's not like this is something new. What I think is new here is the scale of the operation and the effective cowing of, of individual initiative and, and, a, and a sense of, uh, uh, you know, that, that you have a, a role to play in society. And, and I... In my mind, it's, it's still an open question whether this was deeply thought out or it's, it's, it's people taking advantage 
for the different agendas of a, of a uh, panic that's come upon the world. You know, I, I'm a little bit inclined to, not really conspiracy, but I like to find a reason behind it because history is nearly always a little different than it's told. But you need to beware of conspiracy theories with really no evidence or dubious evidence. And, and you know, all that I can see, you can't make a good case, medical case that this is a roaring danger. Uh, it, you know, I'm sure there's doctors here. You know, if, if you gave everyone an injection of, of saline uh, solution, you'd find some people would have a reaction. Uh, so the mere fact that there's some negative on this, you have to put it against they're trying to save about 2% of the population. Uh, but the, 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 the equation, that, and it's one area I'm sympathetic with the president, for what the past president, he did try to keep a sense of normalcy on this because this has the potential to destroy everything about civilised life. Uh, and, and I still don't know how we're going to come out of this. When, it, you know, I, I, when I travel, I go talk to the car dealers and, and the, the thrift shops and, and I go into the poor areas. And I can tell you that the, the, the poor people went and spent massively when they got their several thousand dollars. As one guy says, they don't even think about what the payment is beyond it. I can put the deposit on it. So we've actually made things worse by handing out all this money to people, but it's not even real money. I, I'm at a loss to know what's going on, but I think it signals that the day is far spent for, for us to operate as a normal operation. But we're not helping ourselves. The North American Division cut the tithe allocation to the world church. So we're fighting among ourselves. Meanwhile, Satan is, is bringing larger forces to bear on the whole operation. Uh, we're in a very dicey spot. And, and I'll try to bring it back to Death Center. I started with A.T. Jones, uh, not panicked, but stirred up over the, the incipient Sunday law. His response, call for a revival. That's what they needed, and that's what the Adventist church needs. You know, if we only have the truth on something, and we're not a very attractive or, or, or spirit-filled organization, you know, what's the point of it all? It, it, I mean, you have to be right, but you have to do right. <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, we, we're a mixed bag, and some are better than others. But, you know, as a whole, we're not greatly distinguished from, from other uh, uh, Protestant groups, but we have something very special. And, you know, Ellen White says that when these things begin to fall, even your neighbours will say, you knew about this, why didn't you tell us? Uh, so I don't feel embarrassed, like I said, talking to, um, to uh, uh, Dobson and the others. You know, do, do it nicely, it's just to and fro, but these people need to know. Uh, uh, you know, politicians and, and, and top leaders, they're, they're human beings too. And I've got to tell you something good about Dobson. I'll, I'll go a few more minutes. But uh, after, when I talked to him, we got over the Sunday thing. Then he told me a very gratifying story. He said that early on, you know, he's a child psychologist. Early on in his career, he said he came into contact with um, uh, Raymond Moore. Uh, and Raymond Moore was important to me. When I was at college, I assigned myself a course with him on Ellen White and fiction because he was a hardcore Ellen White believer. And uh, he'd come to prominence by uh, homeschooling the Emperor Hirohito's family and uh, was a top authority in child development and homeschooling. And Dobson said to me, he says, I studied with his, his principles and he says, all I did with focus on the family was put into practice what Dr. Moore taught me. 
and I can tell you, all Dr. Moore had were Ellen White's principles, biblical and, and Ellen White explicated principles. So there's a great vindication of, of an aspect to, to what we've been uh, promoting for, for many years. Yes, I do think it is. Yeah, but but the, the, it's not all what people think. The real issue that we should have challenged it was a determination I think made in panic and with inbuilt bias because, like Governor Newsom in California, is pro-gay and all the rest, doesn't have much sympathy for a lot of the Christian sensibilities. Uh, there was a, a judgment made: the church operation was not an essential service. That we could have challenged. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of the stuff that was essential, pawn shops were, uh, P-A-W-N, uh, were, were uh, essential, as I remember. Uh, liquor stores. Yeah, liquor stores. So, you know, we would have hardly been going out on a limb. And, and uh, one of the last things that I uh, did on my travel, I traveled to California and attended uh, the Grace Community Church. It was in the media, one of these mega churches. They were meeting in, in, in challenge of the governor. They had two services on Sunday, 3,000 people in each service. Unfortunately, no masks, no spacing. I thought that was foolish. But it was wonderful that they were meeting. They were being fined every day tens of thousands of dollars. The, the uh, county had removed the permission for their parking lot, but they persisted. And I think they were acting from principle. Even if everything they did wasn't right, they stood out and... and uh, uh, we're, we're actively worshipping and it was the theology is not quite ours but I felt very much at home with them these were not aberrant sort of Christian crazies by any means uh, and, and uh, I don't know what eventually happened but when I went they, they knew of nobody at their church that had been infected uh, and that's another discussion it's, it's not all that it appears you know the, certain socioeconomic areas are more vulnerable and so on but you know we really should understand that here's the first... I've got a... Well, I'll, I'll go back and tell you one more story. When this... Um, it connects to this. When this began, the last trip that I was on before this illegal one uh, was to uh, uh, San Francisco. And uh, I was told that there were no, no more travelling when I went home. And already it was getting bad. They were starting to put emergency measures. So I went walking into a sort of a Haight-Ashbury district and I remember looking into the food stores and thinking, that's not good. You know, the vapor's falling on this and that and the other. So I tried to go somewhere where there was no one, and I went to a bookstore. There was nobody in the bookstore. <laughs> Very telling. And I got a big book, about four or 500 pages, written in the, I think about 85, called The, uh, the Coming Plague. And, and it was uh, fairly technical, but um, uh, still exciting stories about the uh, virologists dealing with a whole slew of plagues, Ebola and other exotic stuff that's just bubbling up out of not just Africa, South America and so on. And, and this is the beginning of troubles. Global warming has changed the range of all sorts of parasites and pests that carry diseases. They expect massive die-offs in the near future. What does the Bible say? It's, isn't there two plagues that a third of mankind die from? Uh, and, which would not be unprecedented. I, you know, I've tried to get myself grounded on this. The fact that, what is it, is it one or two million people globally have died now, but something of that order. You know, that's nothing much in the great scheme of, of even mo relatively modern history. Remember in the Black Death, a third to a half of, of Europe died. Uh, uh, you know, I'm from Australia. 
almost all the Aboriginals died within about four or five years of the, the uh, Europeans arriving with uh, chicken pox and measles and common stuff. Same thing happened here. You know, there's been Im- immense die-offs. We're just more aware of it now. These are all signs of an earth out of whack, but they are going to get much worse. And so if, if this one's got us to our knees, what do we do with the next one? Like right now, in, in the Middle East, they, they have uh, camel flu. Uh, um, trying to think of the term for it. Uh, MERS. MERS. The death rate from that's 20 to 40 percent. I mean, that's easily 10 times higher than this. You know, that's just one bubbling at the moment. Uh, you know, we, we have to decide, is God with us or is he not as a group? Not to do foolish things, but you can't shut down. Uh, uh, anyhow, one more question and then we'll dismiss. I'll give you an early <laughs> Yes. No, I didn't, but thank you. There's a command not to work on Sunday. You talk about the difference between that and what breaks and what obeys. Well, it's subtle, and I've reread Ellen White's comments again. And you can, you could, you know, weasel it different directions if you like. But uh, uh, there's nothing wrong about doing good on, on, on Sunday. So we're told we could go on uh, missionary outings, take food to, to poor people, even walks in the country. You could even, at a worst case, have a religious service. But to me, that's loaded <laughs> because I've already seen in Australia, they, when I was down there, they had the uh, Uniting Church uh, established, about four or five major churches joined together legally. And then we had a succession of World Council of Churches, Archbishop of Canterbury and, and historical programs, and they, they retold the story of, 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 of the Christian experience and the split between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, and we had some meetings that were, uh, I mean, we, I was, didn't organise it, but I was part of it. And I felt very uncomfortable with these common services where you had Catholic or Church of England priests and ministers pushing uh, you know, stuff on, uh, on, on Sunday, you know, we're sitting there all happy with it. I, wouldn't, I, would, I would be very cautious because we've even got a phenomenon in, in Adventism over on the West Coast where there's a few Adventist churches that meet on Sunday and meet on Sabbath. And, uh, and, and as I remember, one of them even after a while stopped the Sabbath services. Uh, but Ellen White does say, that, that there's nothing wrong with good deeds. She does say that we could even have uh, some sort of religious service. But if you were summoned to the local Catholic or the local uh, Paula White Church and, and, uh, you know, and asked to participate in their service on Sunday, that seems to me like you're sort of complicit in, in their, their statement. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all conscience. Uh, and, and this is what you're, 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 you're saved or condemned by. You have to be convinced in your own heart and when evidence is plain. I, I re- Maybe it doesn't prove anything, but I remember Christopher Hitchens, uh, the enemy of religion and a, and a very articulate writer, used to debate people. And as he was dying of cancer, someone said to him, you know, what if you, uh, in, you know, in an afterlife, find out that Christianity was true and what God said you know, was true? He says, well, he says, I'd say, you didn't give me enough evidence. Well, there's the dispute. God would say, I did. 
But, uh, you know, you can't convince a person against their, their, their mind. Uh, and, on, and on the Sunday, it's a conscience question. But people that are, as the Bible uses this term, willfully ignorant, not wanting to know, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways this goes. And, and you know, I've, been, I've traveled a lot of the world. When I was younger, my father took us around. And the thing that I'm still struggling sometimes to get over it. When we were in India, we took the train across India and I remember in the morning looking out on the fields and there were people squatting down two, three foot apart, checkerboard over the entire plain, as far as you could see, doing their morning ablutions, right up to the railway line. Shocking. And, and you know, you, you have to think twice. They're all loved of God. They're all creatures of a divine maker. But... How do you keep grounded in that, right? And, and this is the mystery of godliness, I think, that somehow in a, in a group of, you know, you can travel enough of the world to know most people don't think. Some people don't even have much ability to think. They don't have the knowledge, the, un, the background. Uh, and, and, and I've been to countries, I remember in, in, um, in uh, Mexico, going to the main cathedral there and seeing women, a lot of women, uh, one on their knees, one step at a time going across the courtyard, and after a while your knees are bleeding, praying fervently. Does God regard that? I, I remember in, uh, in uh, Myanmar going to the Shwedagon Pagoda, where they've got a couple of hairs of the Buddha, who, by the way, never claimed to be divine. It's a philosophy. And, and the, the uh, Buddhist priests, when we talked to them, admitted it easily. But here was a woman weeping and crying, on a certain level, God regards that. And, and it's not for us to judge, but we can't get into a comparative religions thinking they're all fine. We have the truth. We have an obligation to tell it to people, let it work on their heart, and then God judges. Amen. But there are people that are... I'll end this way. I got a, I've been bothered about these letters from, from Adventists, but I got one the other day, about three days ago. Uh, this guy wrote in and he says, I work at the post office. He says, I saw this magazine in the rubbish bin, Liberty Magazine. He says, I read it. And he says, I'm thrilled by what I see. He says, I will be reading every issue from now on. Uh, what did Ellen White say? People looking wistfully to heaven. Uh, that's our, our uh, uh, privilege to reach out to them. And, and yeah, we should be sober-minded because the Sunday laws have come before. The one that we're expecting... Uh, we'll, we'll be, uh, I've got to be careful. Ellen White says all of Christendom is involved. Whether Buddhist countries will be wrapped up in it, I don't know. I don't think it's any test for, for people that are on a totally different wavelength. But certainly the Christian world will be tested with this. But how for you, when a Sunday law comes, is it any worse for you than it is for, for a Christian right now in, in North Korea when their life is on the line for, for, for being an Adventist or, or a, a Bible-believing Christian. They can get killed now for their faith, for worshiping on Sabbath. So the difference is not really great for us personally. Any test is a test. It's just that as a prophetic waymark, when it becomes so broad-based, we know that the battle is about to end, that it's reaching its peak. And that's what I read in Great Controversy and what I see even Milton repeating. There's a, 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 Ellen White says, reason from cause to effect 
And, and he says that the first cause is the temptation of Adam and Eve and everything else follows from it and evil is working out self-destructively but meanwhile you know, we, we can work in it with good and it comes to a final head and God intervenes and uh, removes us from it. That's the exciting moment. To me that's Adventism. It's not Milleritism. You know, they got mixed up in dates and all the rest. But uh, you know, William Miller and the others were a sign that God's spirit was stirring in this country. A country, again, to repeat, it was a time of incredible turmoil, much greater than now. Uh, led to it, it was, they were in the middle of a civil war that they formed the church. There was social unrest. There was violence on every hand. You know, I don't quite be- believe every Western I see, but even to this day, the gun-happy nature of the U.S., is a legacy of, of, of back when it was, you know, the, the, the arm of the, uh, the law was not very long. It was the, the, the weapons that other people had. You know, this is a country that's gone through a, a traumatic experience to even form itself. And, and uh, it's not perfect, but it's had a fairly high ideal as exemplified in the Constitution, whether it was influenced by Masons. You can debate that forever. But I believe they'd inherited a Protestant sensibility and from the English Civil War, that they would not be dictated to by a king or by a mob, that, that the conscience had the right over other people. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, you all attending. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.